Hello, Redeemer. It's good to be here with you and look forward to the time when we can see each other face to face as we are adjusting to this new reality in our world together. We're going to be going through Colossians chapters 2 and 3. We're going to start in verse 20 of chapter 2. So if you would go ahead and turn there, we'll be getting to that in a few minutes. But first, let me go ahead and pray for us as we get started. Father, I thank you for how you provide for your people. I pray that you provide for us now. Help us to adjust to this new reality of life together. And I pray that you would help us to, um, to care for one another, to have wisdom in how we should obey uh, earthly authorities, but also uh, seek to honor you in our lives and how we interact with our neighbors and those around us. Uh, Help us to be consistent in our study of the word and our family devotions together. And help us to know the right way um, to to interact with one another, to serve one another, and to serve your people together. Help us to love you and help us to be your people. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. So if you would go ahead and open to Colossians chapter 2 verse 20 and we'll read that together in just a minute. In 1979, Bob Dylan released his album, Slow Train Coming. One song on that album won a Grammy, and some of you may actually know what it is. And if you, if you can name it, go ahead and try to guess it. But uh, it even became his last top 40 hit. That song got to serve somebody. The lyrics point to the idea that no matter who you are, what's your station in life, your job your religion, or your philosophy, you will serve somebody. Now, John Lennon, on the other hand, took a different view. He was offended by what he thought was poor quality songwriting from Bob Dylan. And he despised the lyrics because those lyrics came from a Christian worldview. So John Lennon wrote his own song, a parody called Serve Yourself. Now, Lennon was claiming that he didn't have to serve any god other than himself. And Lennon's title alone proves Dylan's point. We are slaves to what we obey. In Lennon's case, it was his own ego and his own political philosophy. Who or what will you serve? You've got to serve somebody, and that's true even from the Bible's point of view. You may remember the Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus then answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. In other words, who is your master? Is it sin or is it the Son, Jesus Christ? So to serve Jesus is true freedom. He takes slaves to sin and he frees them to serve as they ought to serve in God's kingdom. But sin is crafty. It takes different forms, and sometimes those forms can even team up to enslave us further. Sin can even take good things and then twist them, and then they master us. Even more, evil rulers sometimes will refuse to let us serve the Lord in freedom as we ought to serve. But great freedom is found in belonging to Christ. To belong to Christ means freedom from sin. It also means freedom from worldly powers and other man-made traditions that try to squelch our joy in God. And we'll see some of that today as we go through Colossians, starting 
in chapter 2, verse 20. So let's read there together. If with Christ you died to elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Some of this we covered last time. We looked at legalism in particular, but today I want to focus on a different theme, slavery and freedom. The words slavery and freedom don't actually appear in the passage directly, but the concepts are there, and they'll become clear as we move along this morning. So to begin, let's look at the slavery part. Paul brings out three things in the passage that enslave us and ultimately lead to death. The first is bondage to false teaching. And another is bondage to the law. And then a third is bondage to the flesh. And Paul gives examples of the reach of these rulers and authorities. Their false teaching is is focused on the law of the spirits and the flesh throughout the first two chapters of Colossians. And these false teachings are cruel taskmasters. They demand exhausting labor from us and we serve them. But Christ is contrasted with them. He delivered from the domain of darkness. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities. And so then I ask the question again, who will you serve? Let's look at verse 20 again. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. So, Here's a key verse for this morning, just verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do you see the contrast here? There's these two sides that are set up, the rulers and authorities in the world, and then the kingdom of God. Those who are in Christ have been transferred from one side to the other. They were dead, alienated, in bondage, under the kingdom of the world, and now those who are in Christ are alive, reconciled, freed from sin, and they belong to the kingdom of God. So if this transaction has taken place and we see how we are now free, why would we submit to live like we lived before? So do you see the intensity of Paul's argument here? Why? Why would you live this way if you were in Christ? Why would you go back and submit as though you were still alive in the world? Now, the word translated submit to regulations, that phrase is actually all one word. It's where we get the word dogma. And the meaning in this context is that when we submit to a teaching, we will obey it. When we submit to the false teaching is to come under the sway of the the rulers and authorities who propagate that false teaching. It shapes our lives. 
So anyone who practices these things is still enslaved to them. Living under the rule and authority of this teaching is a burden and a form of slavery. This is a strong admonition from Paul. And he already told us that Christ defeated these rulers and authorities. If you go back to chapter 2 and verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Why then would we submit to them? If you have Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority, why would you need to submit to regulations, worldly wisdom, or the flesh? So we should not live in bondage to false teaching. Colossians 2 verse 8 is a close parallel to today's passage. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul has been building this argument throughout Colossians 1 and 2, contrasting service to false teachers and service to Christ. And each of the items that he lists in 2.20 through 23, our passage today, those are examples of how the Colossians are being drawn towards submission to these false teachings. So a deceitful philosophy, according to human traditions, elemental spirits or principles, will take you captive. You might suppose that the elemental spirits of verse 20 are just superstitions. But Paul's talking about more than bare superstitions here. He's also talking about human traditions, wisdom, principles, philosophies in general. general. He's saying, don't be captured by a false teaching. In this case, the false teachers appealed to human traditions and some sort of principles to give weight to their argument. So what are some examples? A first example might be our own traditions and our own culture today. These might be examples of human traditions or principles that we see around us. And there's time when our traditions can become a false teaching and that they compete with Christ. In chapter 2, Paul addresses the observance of special days, a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. This issue was that they were elevated to a special importance in the life of the people. You may think of certain things that may compete with our observance of, of Christmas or Easter, special days that would be holidays in our own calendar. You may think of things like Santa or the Easter bunny as things that may compete with Christ. But I would tell you that that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's actually talking about something else. For a faithful believer, those things are probably not going to be our own temptation. A better application would be, from the context, the elevation of a certain practice or holiday to a level of, of importance that's out of sorts with where it should be. A tradition is added here or there. One church practices a nativity scene every year. Another church has a special service These things become regular traditions for us, something that we cherish. And then there may be some reason why you can't do that this year because of resources available, the people, or we're doing something different because we decide to do it differently this year. And then somebody says, I'm leaving because we can't have this nativity this year. That would be an example of somebody elevating a tradition up above the level of where it should be. 
For you, maybe it's not Christmas or Easter. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's Reformation Day or some other celebration that you think are really important. So are those traditions, are there traditions that you have elevated? And if they were threatened, would it be a punch in the gut for you? And have you seen this before? Another example would be our superstitions. Some of the top superstitions in America are maybe kind of silly. Things like knock on wood or cross your fingers for good luck or don't break a mirror. 13 is an unlucky number or any number of others. Notice how many of them are associated with luck. Now, the idea of luck presumably is just a a function of chance. But in reality, people associate it with a little more than that. It's treated as something more than chance. It's a sort of animistic expectation that there's something behind the scenes that's either going to help you or hurt you. And in Colossians, Paul calls these spirits. But whether it's spirits or luck, none of these things should rule us. Another example would be theological drift. And in our day, one way that this uh, has expressed itself is through a sort of moral ambiguity that is a cover for theological drift. And that might be an example of a principle in our own day. Moral ambiguity is popular. It's often presented as with this guise of virtue, being relational, caring, humble, and engaging. But those virtues are then used as a cover for false equivocations, Usually some sort of secular philosophy is inserted. And then they may start with this soft and comforting and virtuous language, but then they quickly move on to undermining Christ and his work. But true Christian virtue is tied to truth claims that are from the Bible. And about what the Bible says about God, his character, and the world that God created. So, by contrast, you'll often see a form of moral ambiguity with deconversion stories. The thing about deconversions is that they are often presented as this process of rebirth. The experience of newfound freedom as somebody comes from, um, out from the, the bonds of traditional morality and they break free. The truth is that often the trajectory is set long before It's really been based on some change and some fundamental assumptions that underlie what they believe about the world, about God, and about ethics. And so they they may be able to hold together these these two different worldviews in tension for a while. But often they just haven't worked out all the implications yet. At some point, they'll look back on their life and they'll find a justification for their trajectory But really, it was really based on this change of fundamental assumptions. And so we should be mindful of the assumptions that we make because they will set a trajectory in our own life. But whether it's cultural traditions or superstitions or secularism hidden under this guise of moral ambiguity, don't be captured by a false teaching. That's that's the point from the passage. Let's think carefully about worldly wisdom that's not according to Christ. Be aware so that you don't submit to bondage. Does a system of thought rule over you? Don't submit to false teaching. Another version of this is to live in bondage to the law. Let's read in verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism in severity to the body, 
but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Back in verse 20 that we highlighted earlier, described the submission to regulations. And then in Colossians 23 that we just read, there's this appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. Paul may be actually referencing Isaiah 29 here, which discusses commandments taught by men with this perception of wisdom. In Isaiah 29, verse 13, it says, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise shall perish, and their discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Paul also addresses this in Galatians 2, Galatians 2.18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. And then in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So the thought in Galatians, it's actually very close to what we saw back in verse 20. If Christ, with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Why would we rebuild what we've also torn down? If we no longer look to the law for justification, why would we submit ourselves to what we sought to escape? So if we've died to the law and now lived to God, there's no reason to go back. Those former things no longer rule over us. Why would we let them rule over us again? There's another form of bondage that's deadly. It's bondage to the flesh. Again, in verse 23, these indeed have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The indulgence of the flesh here is our sin. It's our sinful nature. The wisdom is the guiding, guidance given by false teachings, false teachers. They may seem wise, but the false teachings are not sufficient to deal with our real problems. They can buy into all sorts of novel philosophies that distract us, but our sin is still there. The Net Bible puts it this way. Verse 23 says, A wisdom with no true value, they in reality result in fleshly indulgence. Let me say that again. A wisdom with no true value, they in reality result in fleshly indulgence. There you see a causal relationship between the two. I hear people say things like, this idea really helped me. In our day, every infomercial and advertisement is trying to convince us that they have some problem that, that we have and that they know how to fix it. But no product or philosophy can free us from our sin ruling over us. We may be able to soften our ride for a bit or even ignore the problem for a while or shield ourselves from the impact of our sin, but it will not deal with the problem. So we've seen bondage to sin like this before. If you look back at Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 6 and 7. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your expression downcast? 
Is it not true that if you do what is right, you will be fine? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to dominate you, but you must subdue it. Does your sin dominate you? Does it rule over you? This is a slavery to the flesh. Mankind was created to rule under God's authority. Yet in Cain, we see how sin ruled over him. You've got to serve somebody. Romans 6 describes this bondage to sin and freedom in Christ. It's probably one of the more clear pictures of this concept in the New Testament. In verses 12 and 13, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Again, we see the idea of sin ruling and dominating. Does your sin rule over you? You may say no, but let me ask you this. When you do sin, how do you respond? Does it dominate you in such a way that you really can't escape it? Are your thoughts and actions ruled by it? Is it all that you think about? The question is, what dominates your mind? Many don't even see how their sin rules their thoughts and lives. We become comfortable with our bondage. It rules us like an addiction. At the point that we justify it, we find a reason for it, or we excuse it. We excuse why it continues in our lives, and we serve it. We allow ourselves to be controlled by our sin nature. And when you justify your sin, you, do you say, Someone's, everyone struggles with temptation. There's a difference between temptation common to man and being dominated by your sin. Or do you say, it's his fault that I'm mad, or she did this to me. We redirect the problem at other people to direct it away from ourselves. Do you run quickly to God's grace, but you hold on to your sin tightly, not willing to let it go? You'll see no lasting change and fruit in your life that way. But you don't have to live this way. You don't have to let sin rule over you. False teaching, the law, our sinful flesh, all of these things are working against us to enslave us. And they keep us from freedom before God. And with such a vicious assault, how could we ever make it? Even worse, since we're sinners too, how could we even deliver ourselves from this bondage? Who's powerful enough to set us free? And that's, there's this struggle set up then between these two kingdoms, between two different authorities. But Christ has defeated them. He rules over a better kingdom. Christ is the one powerful enough to set us free. Brothers and sisters, find freedom in Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, it says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Uh, 
in chapter 2, verse 10. It says, And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In 2.19, it says, And not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. The phrase, Christ is the head, stresses his rule and authority over all things. Christ is the one who brings his people out of darkness. In 1.13 it says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. In 2.15 it says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Christ, as the head, is contrasted with these rulers and authorities. He has disarmed them and defeated them. The question is, which rule and authority do we submit to? Christ or to those who may have this appearance of wisdom, but ultimately they have been defeated. And if you've placed your faith in Christ, then this is applied to you. Going back to Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under the law, but under grace, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God. That you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. So do you see what's taking place? You're now submitting to a new ruler. And if you've been raised with Christ, what then? Let's look at Colossians chapter 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. So this passage opens with this conditional statement. There's an if here. If you've been raised with Christ. And if you've been raised with Christ, then you have a new master. You're now free from slavery. You're freed from slavery to sin. But if you have not been raised with Christ, then sin will continue to be master over you. And then the passage moves to these admonitions. Seek the things that are above. Set your minds on things that are above. So first, what does it mean to seek the things that are above? It's to look to Christ, where before we looked to other things. When we were in bondage to sin, we were living for ourselves. We had our own desires for our own kingdom. But for those who are in Christ, we live for him. Our life now belongs to Christ and his kingdom. Remember back in verse 20 where it says, Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Submitting to the world here means to submit to those ideas or hidden forces found in the world. 
Those things have no sway because Christ is the head of all rule and authority. And in Christ's death and resurrection, we see the world differently. We're to submit ourselves to his rule because he is a better master. So our thoughts and actions are to align with God's perspective. We love what he loves, and we desire to see his kingdom come upon the earth. Both thoughts and actions are aligned with one another. I remember the first time that I understood that Christ had died for me. Do you know that joy? There's freedom in knowing that we can have a new life in Christ. Our sin has separated us from God, and we seek our own kingdom, but ultimately that is slavery to our sin. But Christ died to redeem people from that bondage. He sets us free, and now we live for him as a part of his kingdom, a better kingdom. So where were you when you realized what God had done for you? What God has done for us and in us is the basis for how we are to live the Christian life. Knowing what God has done is a starting point. But now let's look at verse 2. It restates verse 1 with some slightly different wording. Verse 1 focused on the reality of a life that's been changed. If our life is now under Christ and his dominion, then we should focus upon him. We should seek the things that are above. But verse 2 adds a little more detail to how we are to seek the things that are above. We do so by setting our minds on those things. Colossians 3.2, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. So setting our minds on things above does not mean to ignore the present needs of those around you. When it says, don't set your mind on things on the earth, it's referring back to those rulers and authorities. Verse 2 is reminding us of this contrast between Christ and those rulers. They compete with Christ for our minds, our hearts, and our affections. So setting your mind on things that are above does not mean that we ignore needs that are around us. The implication is that you will have your heart and life enriched with the gospel of Jesus Christ and be freed to serve others. By dying to self, we are freed to live for Christ. Verses 3 and 4 say, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. We who were once in bondage now see our lives hidden with Christ in God. We look forward to his appearing, and our future is tied to him. And this new reality for the believer now, it's, it's a hope for the future, just, just as Brett discussed last week from Hebrews. So in being heavenly-minded, we are to set our minds on things that we see now from God's perspective. We see our lives from the perspective of God's kingdom. Our circumstances are now seen from a new light And that will have an earthly impact. So being heavenly minded is intensely practical because it addresses what captures our minds. What has captured your mind? Is it a desire for wealth, for women, for politics, or sports? We live in a distressing time. Are you worried? Any of these things could be something that we serve. But we're called to set our minds on God and his kingdom. 
And as we move on in Colossians 3, we're going to see that this impacts what we do. Now, Romans 12, verse 2, addresses the same thought. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. New life in Christ brings with it this new perspective on life, a new way to evaluate our world. And this has practical implications on how we live as a result. If we've died with Christ and your life is hidden with Christ and God, right? then when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. And this has an implication for how we view our future. Right? A renewed mind will affect how we evaluate life and what is to come. So going back to verse 20, if you know Christ, why would you submit to the old way? Don't submit to false teachings or rulers or to your own sin. And then live in bondage. With Christ as our head, we no longer have to live in submission to false teachings or the law or the flesh. Turn to Christ. He is a better master. And set your mind on things above and see your life in a new light. And you've got to serve somebody. So place your faith in Christ and find freedom in serving him and his kingdom. So let's pray together. Father, help us to apply your word this week. Help us not to live as servants of rulers and authorities who would take us and make us serve them, but help us to live as servants of Christ. Help us to live a new life. Help us to see the freedom that we have in Christ to serve him. That being servants of Christ is not a cruel service the way it is to serve these rulers and authorities, but there is great freedom in being servants of Christ. So help us to live in light of new life this week. Help us to love you. Help us to love your people. Help us to, in light of what is going on around us, to serve our neighbors well. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.